Welcome to Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams, and this is the show where we talk about truth and grace boldly. I'm so glad you're here. Well, hey guys, it's Haley, and you're listening to episode 117 of Kindled. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Mike Kruger, and he's walking us through the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. When Dr. Kruger came across this list of 10 principles that were set forth by proponents of progressive Christianity, he saw that they were, in effect, a new Ten Commandments. And what's striking is that they are far less about God revealing his desires and far more about man expressing his own. Less Moses, more Oprah. I think you guys are going to find this conversation absolutely fascinating because these ideas are not just hidden somewhere in a book or in a research paper. They are the air we are breathing today in popular Christian culture and in teachings that have penetrated much of the church. And so what I think you'll find is you will be surprised by how familiar you already are with progressive Christianity once you hear this list of Ten Commandments that Dr. Kruger is going to walk us through. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Michael Kruger. Welcome to Kindled. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. So you wrote a book called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And I would love, before we get into kind of the content and what you talk about in that book, kind of give us a background and understanding of why this topic for you and why you decided to get into this entire area of study. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this book was born out of a number of factors. One factor in particular is my observations of just where we are in our cultural moment particularly within broad evangelical Christianity. Over the last number of years, there's been a number of key figures that have popped up claiming to be evangelicals and claiming to be devout Christians committed to the Bible. But they start talking about Christianity in certain categories and in certain ways that honestly don't sound Christian. In fact, they sound like they come from what historically is known as just liberalism or Christian liberalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that different than what Jay Gresham Machen faced years ago when he wrote his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. And I see a lot of Christians sort of swallowing this as genuine Christianity. And so part of what motivated the book was a recognition that, hey, people need help spotting this and they need to realize that uh, this is out there and it's, it's peddling itself as biblical historical Christianity, but really isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, like you said, a lot of times we don't see it come with the label progressive Christianity. We just hear a message or an idea that sounds attractive and kind of easy to swallow or something that just really draws us in. And so, I mean, there are definitely churches out there that are sticking that, you know, we are a progressive Christian church uh, label on their website, but then there's plenty of authors and just content that is coming from quote unquote Christian authors that we would, you know, sort of trust and believe, okay, you know, whatever they're saying must be informed by the Bible or it must be submitted to its authority. And, um, when in fact, it's it's really not. Yeah, I mean, lots of people have a vested interest in not labeling themselves. Mm-hmm. Some people may actually just misunderstand what's going on and think that they're not progressive when they really are. Mm-hmm. So it could be a number of different factors. But, they, but the average person in the pew, though, is unable to discern these things necessarily when they hear them. And, and part of the reason, and I mentioned this in, in the introduction of my book, part of the reason is because progressive Christianity is not all wrong. It's, yeah. it's really good at actually saying things sort of partly right and partly wrong. It's a, it's a mix, what you might call a half-truth. And it's the half-truths that are really hard to spot because there's parts of them that sound right and parts of them that even are right. And mm-hmm. so once you blend it together like that, it's, it's not rank heresy. 
but it is a distortion of the real thing. And that, that is something that takes help to spot. Right. Which we've seen that happening since, since Genesis three, you know, in the garden, of course, with the serpent telling Eve, um, you know, you would not surely die. You know, there was a half truth in that you wouldn't, you know, she didn't die immediately. She, she got to keep living, but obviously we, we understand what really happened. There was a spiritual death. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, Satan, you know, often leads with something that you would agree with and then hides the other half of it. And I think yeah. a lot of the things with with progressive Christianity are are halfway accurate. And so I think people get lulled in that way before they realize what's what's hit them. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I was mentioning to you, like, obviously, my audience is largely women, if not all women. And it seems to me, and maybe this is just because this is the the type of content I'm consuming and seeing both in my social media and just in the books that are being written and talked about, that it seems like this is particularly something that is really being produced and kind of targeted at women. I don't know if that's just, again, because I am a woman and that's how I see it. But could you speak to that? Is that Does that seem like a fair, maybe it's convenient, the timing where we are culturally and um, with social media, or is that totally off base? No, I think you're onto something there. I mean, it's, of course, always hard to quantify such things and to know how to measure who's more affected by something than something else. But I certainly would be comfortable saying that there's a lot of books and articles and websites that seem to have women as their audience Mm -hmm. that would offer progressive Christianity. I think there's little doubt about that. And Mm -hmm. so we certainly want to help all Christians, particularly uh, any of your listeners, too, that may be struggling with this or may wonder if if what they're following uh, fits the bill. Of, of what we're calling progressive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then getting into what progressive Christianity is, is it helpful for you to kind of like label it or do you do so by walking through the, the Ten Commandments? Yeah, so it may be useful to just know a little bit of where the Ten Commandments came from. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a very sort of well-known theologian out there, sort of a mystical thinker of sorts, although I don't know if he would describe himself this way named Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R. And he's, you know, popular devotionally, popular in certain circles in terms of sort of experiential Christianity. And he's written basically 10 principles in a recent devotional about all Christians should should embody. Mm -hmm. And as I read these 10 principles, I realized, oh, wow, this is the fundamental tenets of progressive Christianity. And so I recoined it, the 10 commandments of progressive Christianity. And they, and as we'll walk through them, people will see that they do capture, not, not in totality, of course, but I think at, at a core level, what pro- progressive Christianity is. And the Ten Commandments weren't made up by Richard Rohr. They actually come from a, from a book by the pastor by the name of Philip Gully. And his book is called If the Church Were Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book basically lays out the Ten Commandments, so to speak, that Rohr uh, lists himself. So that's sort of the world we're in when, we, when we're diving into these Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. And uh, Richard Rohr is, he is extremely popular and, you know, I think his popularity has spread pretty far beyond, you know, obviously traditional Christian circles. And he's all the time, you know, featured on podcasts that are secular as well as Christian really. So he's kind of a crossover figure, but I mean, I know he's also really big with the Enneagram as well. Right. And he kind of came out of the Catholic church is he, I mean, I guess he's still in the Catholic church, but yeah, I'm not sure about the Enneagram. That may be the case. I haven't kept up on that part of it, but right. um, I do think he has Catholic roots, although I'm not sure how active he is currently in the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah, I just, I hear, I'll see him, you know, being featured on podcasts that are, you know, maybe kind of a crossover 
between secular and Christian. And um, yeah, so it's interesting that he kind of has a draw to both communities. Absolutely. So getting into these 10 commandments, maybe what would be helpful is I can read the num- the first one and then you can kind of unpack that for us. Sure. Okay. So, well, and, and again, you wrote these as a response. You said to his, what was it? The 10. Well, this is, these are the, the 10 chapters in Goli's book and what Rohr calls 10 principles of Christian living. So these, the titles of my chapters are actually their wording. Oh, okay. Um, that's wow. an important thing to know. Yeah. That makes it even more interesting. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, I'm going to actually have you go ahead and and read it for us then, because I think... Yeah. Well, the very first chapter is first for a reason. The first of the progressive commandments is this. Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. And uh, even J. Gresham Machen observed this in his day when he wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism, and it's been true ever since, which is one way to spot progressive Christianity is they're less concerned about worshiping Jesus as the divine son of God, and they're more interested in his moral example. And part of the reason for that emphasis is that most progressive Christians just deny that Jesus is God. So some of the more aggressive versions of progressive Christianity will just simply say, nope, Jesus isn't God at all. In fact, that's what Gully does in his book. He just simply states it plainly that, that Jesus wasn't divine and would be sort of, would be rolling over in his grave, so to speak, if he found out people thought he was. And so there's a, there's a clear sense that he doesn't think Jesus is God. So of course, you're not going to worship him. But even more modest progressive Christians, even if they sort of tip their hat to the divinity of Jesus in principle, what they really want to talk about is a religion where you're just, you're just looking to Jesus as a moral guy. You just want to be a good person, follow Jesus as sort of this wise sage who helps you live out a good life. And if you live a good life, then God loves you. And someday you'll go to heaven, assuming that there's a heaven at all. So what you realize in this first commandment then is that at the heartbeat of progressive Christianity is just a version of moralism. It's not actually Christianity. Christianity is where you're saved from your sins by God's divine grace through Christ. Progressive Christianity is, is you're not being saved from anything, that you're just sort of working your way towards the divine by your by your moral status that you, you get through law keeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something I thought was a very good argument that you made in that first chapter was that Jesus's moral example is binding only if he is Lord. So why do we even care about his moral example if he's just another guy? Yeah, this is this is one of the ironic things about this. And I, I find it, it, the whole thing falls apart here is that they make much of Jesus as a moral example. But if he's just an ordinary Joe, and by ordinary, I just mean he's human, not God. Yeah. Then why should we care? Why should we think that he's anything particularly special? Even if you think he's a remarkable person, kind of like Gandhi, is that a reason to think that his moral example is absolute or that it's binding? Well, of course mm-hmm. not. I mean, you know, the progressives are very good at saying, don't push your morality on me. Well, why is why does Jesus get a pass? Why does he get to push his morality on people? So right. at the end of the day, it, it actually is a system that doesn't, doesn't hang together very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you just end up with moralism, like you say, and this is a helpful kind of uh, way to rem- remember it, but deeds over creeds. And I had not heard that before. Oh yeah. That's, that's a mantra within the progressive for sure. Yeah, man. And it almost, it sounds good in the sense like, yeah, you know, like we want to see real change. We want to see real behavior, like true, you know, loving your neighbor. And that's what Jesus said we should do. And so it's like, you want to see that, but you don't get that without, you know, his actual lordship and the transformation that happens in your heart. You can't yeah, just Yeah, well, that's the half truth, right? The half right. truth is they're, they're partly right here. God does care how we live and 
it is true that Christians ought to live a life that's different and noteworthy and moral. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that's what it's about is the problem. No, it's not about our good works. It's about what Christ has done for us. Right. Okay. So what is number two? So number two is, uh, and again, this is their wording, affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. And again, this is a very interesting chapter, and it gets at the heart of a, of a second issue in progressive Christianity. The first one is the denial of the divinity of Jesus, and the second one is, is the denial of the problem of sin. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, in, in essence, look, you know, let's not be so hard on people. You look, well, let's, let's play at people's positives, not their negatives. Let's talk about their potential rather than, than pointing out that they're broken. And, and there's, a, there's a shift away from historic Christianity, which has tried to point out that, hey, look, people are, are sinful and desperately need of saving. And they're going to like, well, maybe not so much. Let's focus what they could be. So now, to be fair, there's a half truth here. Again, um, one of the things I say in the chapter is it is true that humans are special in terms of being made in the image of God. And it's, and it's also true that saying that we're sinners is not the only thing that we that can be said. We're also capable of amazingly good things. And there's a, a remnant of God's image in us. So there's a sense in which there's some partial truth here. But at the core, this chapter basically rejects the Bible's teaching on sin in every real way. In fact, what it tends to indicate is if you, if you point out people's sin, then you're basically mistreating people and oppressing people. And it's, it's a very common thing that you would hear today in the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hear that all the time. And it, it almost has just become so pervasive that you forget that that's actually completely antithetical to what the gospel says. Here's the other thing that they do is that if geez, if there's not a sin problem, which is what this chapter is designed to, what they're trying to say, if there's not a sin problem, then, then you have to rethink about what Jesus did when he died on the cross. If, he's, if there's not a sin problem, then obviously he's not dying for sins, they would argue. He must, must be doing something else. Mm-hmm. And this is amazing. What they end up basically doing is changing the, the cross entirely. Now the cross is not him dying for our sins. Now the cross is just an expression of sacrifice and love. It's just a, a picture of someone who's going to do anything for you kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so once again, it's, it's reducing Christianity to, to sort of this moralistic tendency. Yeah, absolutely. Which we see that in a ton of popular authors. Um, and that's where getting into the content that's being produced for women, like you see so much just kind of around merit-based living and working harder and hustle culture and all of these things that feel good and sound like positive messages. Like, why shouldn't we work hard or why shouldn't we go after our dreams or whatever it is, you know, love people and, and serve people. And, and like we've already said, and we'll probably continue to say, it's not that those things might not flow out of a changed heart and a changed life, but you can't start with them. You know, they, they aren't enough to actually save you. Right. It's not good news to say that, that the whole Christian life is just be better, better, better. Yeah. Uh, that's actually bad news. We need someone who's been good for us. Right. Amen. So true. Okay. Number three. Yeah. The third one is entitled the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. And uh, that's sort of a confusing title, I know, but of course it's their wording. But the nutshell here is that chapter three is about this idea that progressive Christianity, that we should stop judging people. And uh, you can see how these things all, all build on each other. So the first one is, well, Jesus isn't really God. Uh, the second one, there's no such thing as a problem with sin. And now, now the third one is, well, let's stop being so judgmental. And so basically it's a chapter of how if we just stop telling people they're wrong, then 
and we, we, we would be better off, that we need to stop this sort of, quote, culture of judgment and be sort of more kind to people and so forth. And if you want to have real reconciliation with those you're estranged from, then just stop pointing out wrong behavior. Now, you know, needless to say, this, this is an incredible chapter because at the core is it's, it's inherently self-defeating as a chapter. So how do you have a chapter that says, hey, you Christians should stop judging when, when the whole chapter is how you should stop judging? Right. <laughs> In other words, they're, they're actually doing the thing that uh, they're actually judging Christians or judging people for judging when they're saying you shouldn't do that. So it's a mm-hmm. bit self-contradictory at the end of the day. Yeah, you call it the rhetorical equivalent of sawing off the branch that you're sitting on, which I think is yes. funny. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you go around telling people that they're wrong for telling people they're wrong, you, you've got to have some self-awareness eventually that, wait a second, didn't I just do that? And that, that amazingly does not dawn on, on either Gully or Roar in this instance. Right. Yeah. And one other thing I want to point out that you uh, said in this chapter is that the proper basis for calling something sinful is not personal perfection, but simply whether God regards it as sinful. So it really takes us out of the equation to determine whether anything is sinful or not at all. Like we, we don't have to be the arbiters because God is. Yeah. In other words, our job isn't that, well, I can't call something wrong until I become perfect. That's not the biblical model. We don't determine right or wrong based on our own perfection, but on the basis of God's and that's revealed in his word. So if, if something violates God's word, yes, we can say, Hey, that's the behavior we should not, we should not engage in. Right. It's just a, a, seems like a very basic misunderstanding of the commandment in Matthew seven, you know, do not judge lest you be judged. And the whole discussion of the log in your eye and the speck in your brother's eye. But what he actually said was take the log out so that you may see clearly you know, and it's for the, yeah. for the purpose of not being a hypocrite. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's the correct. intent. It's, yeah. it's not that you never should speak truth to someone if they've got a speck in their eye, like that wasn't the point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it would be very strange indeed for what we read in the Bible to think that God is calling us to never point out true things or false things. Of course we are. We just, we don't want to be hypocrites and we're doing it. We don't want to call out a sin and we're secretly doing the same thing. Right. Okay. So what is number four? Number four is gracious behavior is more important than right belief. This is basically a chapter that says the real problem with Christianity that we need to fix is it's too worried about theology Mm. and that we need to stop thinking about right belief and doctrine. That doesn't really matter. Theological convictions don't matter. What really matters is just being nice to people, being gracious to people. Mm -hmm. This is another stunning chapter, but perfect fit with progressive Christianity. One of the things that progressive Christianity does is downplays the importance of theology, in particular theological orthodoxy. And then it says anybody who cares about theological orthodoxy is just a Pharisee. And that's effectively what they do in this chapter is they, they fling the Pharisee charge out and say, well, if you care about theology, don't you realize that's what the Pharisees did? That Jesus was upset with them because they cared so much about theology. Now, of course, anybody who's read the Gospels know that their problem wasn't that they cared too much about theology. The problem was that they just had bad theology. They had Mm -hmm. human arguments in the place of of God's word, and they were hypocrites who did one thing and and said another. So again, this is pretty predictable from the progressive crowd. Our response would be obviously that we think good theology is not the problem, but but the solution. Right. And that they, yeah, like you said, they, they had bad theology and they cared too little about good theology. Absolutely. Are you a female entrepreneur with a small or budding business? Are you hoping to get your business off the ground, but you find yourself hesitating because you don't have a brand or a logo to speak of? That is besides that one that you tried your hand at in Canva a few months ago. 
You may not know this, but while producing this podcast is a huge passion for me, my first love was web and graphic design, and I still run a successful business helping small businesses shine online. You need a stunning logo that represents who you are and what you do. You need guidance with colors and aesthetic, and you want someone who has good taste to make the vision in your head become reality on paper. Not to brag, but I do this every day for women who are so relieved to have finally found someone who gets them. Let's chat about your business's branding needs on a free, no obligation, 15 minute phone call. I love getting to know listeners. And if I can also be a part of your business's success, that's a win-win for me. Shoot me an email at Haley at kindledpodcast.com or visit my website at hwilliamscreative.com. In regards to that, I actually saw an example of this being worked out uh, yesterday. I listened to an episode. Uh, sometimes I listen to you know podcasts that I know I will disagree with just to hear what they're saying. And there's this one by a podcast called Queer Theology. And they had a t- an episode titled, The Bible is Sometimes Wrong. And so, of course, you know, that's going to be nice and juicy. <laughs> so uh-huh. they broke down their example for that statement was Genesis 3, the, the passage I already referenced where the serpent sa- says that you will not surely die. And they're like, so, you know, what we see happen is that actually Adam and Eve, they don't die. They go on to live. And so what this proves to us is that the Bible is sometimes wrong. And we see this, you know, we, we see that the Bible, they, they got it wrong here. And they're telling us the reason the, the Bible even tells that story is to show us it's not inerrant. That there's, there's clearly, you know, why would they, why would the Bible tell us that they walked out of the garden, they were cast out and they continued on to live, you know, if what God said was really true. (laughs) So it's just an, it's an amazing misunderstanding. And it's like, it sometimes makes me want to scream hearing stuff like that. Cause I'm like, you just don't get it. But I mean, I, you see that happening all the time. And that's why it's like, this is why theology does matter because I mean, you can't even read a simple passage in the Bible that seems to be really obvious to me and get that right without a right understanding of God. Yeah, after a while, you, you're, you're convinced these people are looking for problems and creating problems when, they're, when there's not any, when they, when they come up with fanciful interpretations like that. Right. I know. It's just um, hard, hard to even believe that you can take it seriously, but I know a lot of people do get swayed by those types of arguments. So let's move on to number five. Number five is inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. So this is just a euphemism for basically the problem with you Christians is you're too dogmatic. You're too sure of what you believe. Stop being so certain. The most important thing isn't the answer. It's the question, right? And mm-hmm. true Christians are, are going to be just, you know, on a journey and they're on a journey and they don't really know where they're going to end up. And it's the journey is more important than the destination. And so let's just all sort of just say, we don't know for sure. And the real problem is that, you know, you think you know for sure. And if you think you know for sure, well, then that's your downfall. Mm-hmm. So the argument goes. Once again, of course, this particular approach, not only is it out of source with scripture, which is one thing, but also, again, inherently inconsistent. You know, so progressive Christianity here laments the dogmatism that biblical Christianity has, but all the while is offering their own dogmatic claims about how wrong it is. So they're basically smuggling in their own certainty through the back door. And once again, it's it's remarkable to me that Goli and the others don't see this, that you chide someone for being so sure, but they're pretty sure. In fact, they're pretty sure of many things in the book. Um, and they're pretty sure that Christians, historic Christianity is wrong. And so again, there's a, there's a profound inconsistency there. 
Yeah. And that just points me to the fact that we cannot, as humans, we cannot get outside of the confines of the box that God has created in terms of there is an absolute truth. Like there is. And so even in our attempts to deny that fact, we prove it. <laughs> so yeah. our minds are not able to even reason outside of that reality. Yeah. And, and, and really, this, is, this overlaps a lot with chapter six, too. Chapter six says encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. But it's basically the same message that chapter five has, which is this idea that, you know, stop just trying to match what your group says. Stop trying to be uh, consistent with the orthodox position because that's just group think. And you should be a free thinker and on a journey. And, and so it's a similar point, which is that, look, the problem with you is you just believe in absolute truth. And we all know that that can't be. But of course, once you say that there is no absolute truth, that itself is an absolute statement. And again, they're sawing off the branch they're sitting on. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly there is that, you know, we see a lot of the language around journey, questions, uncertainty. And it's like the idea is to land at a place of uncertainty rather than a place of certainty. And and I I don't think you'd say asking questions is wrong inherently or bad, but how do you kind of see that, you know, where, where is the line there? Like, how can we identify when we are hearing those things in our um, friend groups or in our churches or in our small groups? How do we know where that line is of, you know, look, I think you're trying to create more doubt than you are certainty in what God has said. Yeah, I mean, doubt is the new virtue in our culture. Um, Uncertainty is the new virtue. And so you'll find people will praise you if you're unsure and condemn you if you're sure. And as soon as you pick up that vibe, you realize there's a problem. Now, on the flip side, it's important that, 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 that we recognize it. a couple of things. One is it's okay to ask questions, and we want to be a church and a community that is open to that. And also, we also have to recognize that we're not equally sure of everything we believe. Yeah. And we're, the core truths of the Christianity about the, the divinity of Jesus and his resurrection of the dead and, and salvation by grace, yes, I mean, we're absolutely sure of those things. You know, are, are we as equally sure about mode of baptism or you know, millennial positions? Well, no. I mean, there's, there is room for saying people can be overly dogmatic about certain things, but it depends on the certain thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again, there's a half-truth here. We don't want to be flatly dogmatic about every single thing as if they're all equal. But at the same time, the idea that uncertainties are virtue is just completely out of sorts with what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of this chapter, I love this line. You said that Christianity is not about mankind's never ending journey to God, but about God's completed journey to us to save us from our sins. Just in case. Yeah, that's, that's a big paradigm shift for people is that, you know, if, if you define religion as a perpetual never ending journey, well, of course, as soon as you claim certainty, you violated the rules. But what if that's not what religion is? What if religion, at least Christian religion is, is God finding us and explaining himself to us Right. Well, now, now you can be certain because it's a divine act that did it. Mm-hmm. It's not just us trying to figure out God. And that, that I think is the paradigm shift people need. Yeah, man, it's a good one. Okay. Number seven. Number seven is meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. And this is basically an anti-church move from progressive Christianity. And the mm-hmm. problem with the church is that it's, it's an institution. It always defends itself. It's authoritarian. And we should be, uh, you know, four people against institutions. And so, you know, when you think about the modern cultural moment, this is no surprise. I mean, we live in a, in a modern cultural moment that's very anti-authority and anti-institution. So the idea that the church is, you know, part of the problem there is not shocking. Their, their solution here is, hey, you know, let's just stop being about institutions and, and more about getting it done and, and so forth. Well, it, you know, just helping people. And what you realize here is that Gully's account of the church is purely horizontal. It's got 
no vertical dimensions at all. It's only about how humans relate to humans and not about how God relates to humans. And mm-hmm. once you take out how God relates to humans out of the church, well, of course there's no authority. Now it's just humans and humans. And so, you know, another sign of progressive Christianity is everything is described in horizontal language rather than vertical language. And that I think is a, is a big thing to look out for. As you're talking about that, I'm sure you're familiar with the term church hurt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, would you say that as a term would maybe be a red flag when someone's talking about that? I mean, I see that just more and more. Yeah, I would say it's a possible red flag. Okay. I would say this is about the half truth again. There actually are a lot of people who've been hurt by the church. Right. Um, The church is a fallible, sinful group of people. And sometimes individuals, pastors, leaders in the church, elders in the church do wrong things and hurt people and even hurt them badly. So when we come across someone who's, who's hurt by the church, there's some sense which we need, to, we need to suss out what reason they're hurt and, how, and what the details are, because it could be genuine. On the flip side, some people, when they say they're hurt by the church, just mean that they're casting the church off because they're weary of, of people telling them what to believe and what to mm-hmm. do, and, and, and you know, just sort of an inherent objection to anything that's authoritative. Well, obviously, that would be a red flag. Right. And, and this is where it gets very messy. We live in a world where a lot of people have been hurt by the church and legitimately hurt. And so we want to make sure we're hearing those people, listening to them, compassionate and sympathetic to them, while at the same time making sure that they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And again, because this is God's world and God's universe and God's design, I think what we see when we reject his design and we say, no, we're not going to submit to a a local body and a local church, and we're not going to have any authority and we're not going to have community is we just see a lot more pain and brokenness ultimately. And and like you said, it's not to diminish that anyone who has had that, it isn't real and isn't valid, but you don't get to create a new design and then not experience the pain and the brokenness that is going to come with going against what God has intended. Absolutely. Created for our good. Okay. What's number eight? Well, eight is actually very similar. So we've covered it largely. Number eight is peacemaking is more important than power, which is, again, another anti-church chapter. The essence there is an anti-authoritarian move against the church. And basically, he dismisses any idea of church discipline. And at the end of that chapter, I say, well, look, there is a right place for gentle, well-intentioned church discipline in the church to help guide people back on the path. And again, if that only can be true, if there's a divine aspect to it, if it's only human to human, that just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. I've had women on this podcast who have talked about how church discipline was actually the means that God chased them down and, and how much of a grace it was in their life. Absolutely. Okay. Number nine. Number nine is we should care more about love and less about sex. So this brings us to the last two chapters and you you see it coming in in the progressive move. It's no surprise that he's kind of saved it for the end here, but You'll find that in almost every progressive situation, when they're downplaying doctrine, downplaying church authority, downplaying truth, and downplaying certainty, there's always a moral payoff. And this is where it comes. You know, it's no surprise then that one of the big applications here at the end is, well, you know, God doesn't really care about your who you sleep with and, and your sexuality. And mm-hmm. it's it's amazingly, what's amazing is how predictable this is. You'd think that on the progressive side, they would they would try to you know, hide this a bit more, or at least be less obvious about it. But it's so clear every time that once you change all these doctrines and change all these things, you, you realize every time what's hiding behind the door is a, is a desire just to be more sexually free. And it's really kind of predictable and, 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 of course, very sad at the same time. And so he argues here for the idea that we should, God's got bigger things to worry about is the essence of the, of the message. God doesn't really care that much about sex. Just, just calm down and relax. 
you know, mm-hmm. God's got uh, bigger things, bigger fish to fry. And of course, we know biblically that's not the case. God very much cares about sexuality because it hits at the core of marriage, and marriage reflects Christ and the church. Yeah, absolutely. And you said in this chapter that Christians would argue that it is very possible, in fact, very common for very nice people with many other virtues to be engaged in behavior that is very wrong. It's not just these kind of demonized ideas of sinners being serial killers who commit terrible sins. It is, you know, you say the sweet old lady next door can commit sins, even big ones. And, And I think that's something that you know, a lot of Christians probably maybe get wrong or or misunderstand, but to, uh, you know, to kind of separate the idea of that sin being your identity in a sense, it's like you, you don't actually get to redefine yourself by your sin, you know, and that does not change who you actually are as a created being, you know, human being and made in God's image. Yeah, that's right. And you have to realize that for the progressive Christian movement, that argument is a way to defend their sexual behavior. And so here's here's the way it plays out. They're basically like, well, look, you know, the people who are engaging in the sexual behavior are really nice people and they love each other and, and they love their neighbor and they give to the poor. So how can you condemn their sexuality when they're such good people? And and this, believe it or not, this is actually an argument that affects evangelicals. They, they What they do is they meet non-Christians who are engaged in sexual sin, and they realize that they're really nice folks, and they're really, mm-hmm. they really seem to be upright people who do good things and are kind, and they're thinking, wait a second, if, how can I condemn their sexual activity when they seem like such nice people? But then you have to realize, wait, you know, the Bible's clear on that. You can, you can be a really nice person and still in other places in your life really miss the boat, and yeah. that is something that we need to remember. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure this has been said thousands of times, but in this, in the very same spirit, if I get angry at my children and scream at them and sin against them, and yet, you know, you see me at church on Sunday morning and someone's like, well, she seems like such a nice person, you know, how can, how can that be wrong? It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Like it's, you know, I mean, you're only seeing a slice of a person's life. Right. And while like, I think, you know, those, that sin of, you know, the sexual sins are sins that are committed against oneself. And so those are, you know, maybe just have a different effect on an individual than the ones that are commit, you know, committed outside the body in a sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a difference there, but you know, the same thing is true that, yeah, we need to kind of, separate those two things and understand them to be what they really are. All right. What is number 10? Yeah. As we come to the last one here, this is not surprising, but incredibly sad. Um, The last one is life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Mm. And that's goalie's wording. And it's, it's shocking how old it is. He's basically just blatantly says, don't worry about the afterlife. That doesn't really matter. You know, what, what matters is this life. And I, I can't imagine a statement more opposite than what Jesus taught. Jesus says, no, do, do, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who can destroy the soul and body in hell. In other words, don't, don't think if you save your life now, you're, you're doing it. You're doing anything because there's still eternity that matters. Mm-hmm. You'd rather give everything up now and still keep yourself in the afterlife. And so it's the 100% opposite of Christianity at every, at every turn. Mm-hmm. And incredibly sad because... You know, if you're, if you're going to advocate for no truth, advocate for no, no divine Jesus, no worship, and a religion of moralism, and all it's about is helping other people, then of course this is what you're left with. You're left with no eternity, no afterlife. All you have is the here and now. And truthfully, this is what makes progressive Christianity so sad. And this is why it's not good news. This is all you got right now. And it's a really sad chapter for a very sad approach. But that's, that's, the, that's their 10th commandment. 
man, yeah, it is sad. And yet it like, it helps us understand why it would be, you know, why it's so attractive to people who don't believe in the God of the Bible and eternity and this idea of heaven and hell, because you are really left with, well, what else? I mean, why would we not, you know, what is there to focus on just doing good works and helping the fellow man? And, you know, that's kind of it. That's what they would say. And of course we know how hollow that is at the end of the day. Why would he, why would I care about my fellow man? If there's no eternal value to it, it's just a total temporary bandaid that doesn't really do anything. The only, the only thing that matters is if there's a divine perspective, which is the very thing this chapter says we shouldn't have. Yeah, absolutely. So as, you know, going through those, I I would imagine, you know, a lot of people are having kind of those ding ding moments in their head of, oh yeah, I've seen this here. I've heard that there, but as believers, and maybe you could answer this just in your own personal life. Like, how do you respond when you see that crop up in a conversation with a friend or an acquaintance? And, you know, I mean, obviously we we have to understand whether someone is, is truly a Christian or not, whether we're having that kind of conversation and what we're able to talk to them about. But when you see progressive Christianity kind of rearing its ugly head, like how do you work through that in your conversations? Yeah, well, I mean, if, you know, to your listeners, I would, I would say my first encouragement is to just to make sure that, sh- that you don't fall into progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. So leaving aside for the moment, how yeah. to talk to your non-Christian friend. I mean, step number one is maintain an Orthodox Christian perspective and view. So, you know, check yourself, check your heart, check your beliefs, make sure you're not getting sucked into some of these things. Maybe there's mm-hmm. one or two or three of these that, that you realize you are believing. Yeah. And that's certainly worth looking at more closely. So that'd be, that's always step one is guard your heart and guard your own, own doctrine. Right. And if you feel like God's got you in a stable place, there are times to bring it up with your non-Christian friends. When you hear it, you know, one, one simple thing to point out to people, you, you don't even have to point out to someone whether their beliefs are true or false. One, one tactic is just to point out to them that it's not Christian. And I think this is an important step. So if someone has a belief, you don't have to necessarily prove to them the belief is wrong at first. You can just simply prove to them it's not a Christian belief. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by just appealing to the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great way to, to begin. So just leave aside the truth of it and just say, look, whatever, whatever you think about your belief, I just want you to know that's not Christianity. And I think that, that would get you a long way down the road. Yeah, that's a great point, at least in those conversations with people who would claim to be Christians. Of course. And- yeah, there's some people that would be like, of course not, I'm not a Christian. And then that's a different conversation. <laughs> right, right. But, but the thing about progressive Christianity, and, and of course, this is the whole point of this, is that most people who hold it think they're Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you can go down that route most of the time. 90% of the time, you get a lot of mileage out of just simply saying, I just want you to know that what you believe is not Christian. And I yeah. think that would be very helpful most of the time. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I would definitely recommend for people to look at your book. It is a very quick read, very easy read. I mean, you can read it in probably, what, an hour? I mean, it's it's definitely really, really easy to digest. And as far as like additional resources, do you have anything that you would recommend people look into to learn more about this? Uh, well, they can always read Jay Gresham Machen's original book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. That's not near as easy as a read, yeah. <laughs> just as a fair warning, but it, it's a way to go deeper. And and with my book, you know, one thing your listeners might consider is doing a, a small group uh, discussion of it. And you mm-hmm. just do a chapter a week for 10 weeks and discuss the chapter. And I think any group ought to be able to, to work through the book pretty easily that way. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us about this and break this down. I think this is just so helpful to kind of get a bird's eye view of what progressive Christianity is and what it 
um, what it purports to do. And, and we see it everywhere today. So this is just really timely. So thank you. Thanks. Great to be on the show. I hope that that conversation was helpful and insightful for you. And I hope that you feel a a little bit better equipped to identify some of the messages that are actually originating from progressive Christianity out in the wild. So whether you are reading books or listening to podcasts or listening to your favorite teacher or hearing a sermon from another church online, even watching TV shows, I think what you'll notice is that these Ten Commandments work themselves into so much of the teachings and the popular cultural ideas, even within the subculture of Christianity of our day and age, the time that we are living in. So wherever you're consuming, whatever content you're consuming and taking in, just kind of do a, a check through for these types of ideas. And this might be an episode that's worth listening to again, maybe even taking notes on just to kind of hit the high points and remember that when you see an idea that sounds really good and sounds really true, but has been twisted ever so slightly, it's no longer truth. It's no longer helpful. A half truth is a whole lie. So again, I think this would be a great episode to listen to again. And if you want to grab Dr. Kruger's book and even go through it in a small group, I think that'd be an awesome idea as well. All right, guys, I will see you next week here on Kindled. Have a great week.